It's wonderful to be here again. I missed you last Sunday. Thank you, Dr. Stevens, for bringing God's Word so powerfully and ably last week. We are delighted that we have uh, Dr. Stevens and others who fill in when I'm gone. In fact, you know Dr. Fred Luter is going to preach for us. I'm going to be here, but he will preach at the end of the month on the fifth anniversary of Katrina. If you haven't heard Dr. Luter preach, you need to make sure you're here and bring your friends, all right? Because there's going to be a powerful energy in this room as he brings God's Word to us on this uh, day of remembrance when we remember the flood and the storm that came and how God has enabled us since then through His grace and His glory. And uh, we have been in Texas part of this time keeping our two grandsons. I also ran a bobcat cutting down cedar trees. Now, that was a great experience, I'm telling you. I got in that little bobcat behind that iron cage with those little pinchers on the front, and my feet were working and my hands were working, and I was jerking this way and that, running into things, trying to make that thing work. And uh, they were watching me and sort of giving me a little uh, prep about, you know, how to do things. And so I was sort of getting the hang of it, and he said, okay, well, I'm leaving. I said, all right, good, I appreciate the little lesson here. He said, by the way, if you hit a hive of bees. Well, that's the first time I've thought about hitting a hive of bees. He said, if you hit a hive of bees, bite your tongue real hard. He said, it won't keep, keep them from stinging you, but somehow it helps. So bite your tongue real hard, idle down the bobcat, and walk slowly away. He said, they ought to stay with the bobcat if it's still making noise. I said, you're not leaving me. What did you just say? You can't make that your parting word. I'd had bee trouble the whole time. Killing wasps and hornets and everything. I bet I killed 20 nests while I was there. I did not want to run into a wasp nest or a bee nest while I was running that bobcat. And so I started out thinking, Lord, why wasps and bees? Why? When I was in Africa, I was saying, Lord, why mosquitoes? The only stuff I know mosquitoes do is bad. Why, Lord? I want to show you something from Psalm 139 that I think is helpful and enriches this psalm. I really think it does. I hope that you get the drift as I have. I'm going to be in the psalm today and next Sunday and the following Sunday. We're going to walk our way through some of the most beautiful poetry in the Bible, and it is often used on Right to Life Sunday when we talk about uh, the right for and a, uh, the human being to live from conception forward. We go to Psalm 139. You were knit together in my mother's womb. We're going to be there on the third Sunday. Today, I want to just take the first six verses, and then I want to read the end of the psalm for you show you some of the perplexities that come out of it and try to drop the psalm into the question of evil in the world. Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. 
You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Verse 19. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Sometimes people want to lob off the end of the psalm. One fellow wrote, if those last verses weren't there, this would be the most beautiful poetry in the Bible. I went to one study Bible and they had their whole commentary between verse 18 and 19. I almost couldn't find 19 to the end of the chapter. And when you read it through, the whole way through, the contrast remains. You wonder why the psalm starts with such beautiful language and then ends with this complaint about the enemies, these wicked people who seem to prevail and they don't honor God and they dishonor his name and they're still working out there and trying to take David's life, plotting against him, assassins that are after him, people that want to take the throne from him. I mean, he has enemies like maybe you and I never had enemies. Enemies who will plunder the palace, rape his wives in public. Enemies who want to destroy him and his whole family. And he ends this psalm saying, why are these enemies still around? Why are they still here? Maybe you, because of personal sorrow or just looking at the world in general, have begun a deep question in your own heart. Why, God? Why are there bad things in the world? If you're a good and loving God... And you could prevent them? If you are asking the question, ma'am, you're in good company. The best man on the planet, he was the most righteous man alive. Job asked those same questions. He lost his home, he lost his property, he lost his wealth, he lost his children. He lost the comfort of his wife. He lost his health. And he turned his face up to God. And he said, why, O oh Lord, was I ever born? Why were there knees to receive me? And breasts to nurse me? Why wasn't I stillborn? 
Why didn't they just leave me to die when I was an infant? I don't understand. If you're struggling with that kind of question, you're in good company. And if you are suffering, don't feel by yourself. Maybe you have suffered the loss of somebody that you love. That happened to Jesus. Jesus suffered the loss of his cousin and his longtime friend, lifelong friend, John the Baptist. He lost him in a way that is horrible, in a way that probably you've never lost anybody that you loved. John the Baptist was captured by their enemy, Herod the Tetrarch. Herod imprisoned him. Some people think that John was imprisoned in the Herodian that was built by Herod the Great overlooking the fields of Bethlehem. I was there a year ago. I walked through the maze of tunnels and made my way up and down the staircases, walked into the great banquet hall where perhaps he had that banquet where Herodias's daughter danced. It could have been that place. We don't know where it was, but it might have been. And John perhaps imprisoned below. And now he says to the daughter, what do you want? Anything. And she said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. To please her mother, who was upset because John the Baptist said to Herod the Tetrarch, you shouldn't be marrying your brother's wife. They delivered word to Jesus that John the Baptist had been executed and Jesus just wanted to get away. He wanted to disappear. He told his disciples, let's get in the boat and get out of here. And looking for silence, time of contemplation, some downtime and alone time, they cross the Sea of Galilee. Everybody in the boat is thinking about this same horrible thing that happened to God's mighty prophet. Jesus said of him, no greater man born of women than John the Baptist, whose head was delivered on a platter in a drunken banquet hall. Why? The disciples must have been asking. I believe that Jesus was grieving and in sorrow just as he was at Lazarus' tomb. That even though he knew everything, these things caused him pain. But do you know, he could not stay alone for long. There was such a need in the world of his day, such a desire to see him and hear him, and bring the sick to him, that when they got to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the people, the mob, the crowd, had traveled along that north end of the Sea of Galilee, and they were there when they landed, thousands of them. And Jesus, who was seeking the peace and solitude of that hour, had compassion on the multitude and the scripture says he healed their sick it's not just your friend dying in an awful way it's your boy being sick that brings you sorrow 
and grief. And it was evident to Jesus as well as all the disciples that terrible things are part of the human experience, whoever you are, wherever you might be. And it was evident to David. I want you to think about the last part of Psalm 139 being the seedbed out of which the poetry grows. Instead of trying to lob it off and end all your meditations at verse 18, take 19 through the end of the chapter and see that as the context of God's activity in your life. That God is busy in your life even though there are people who seek to do evil and maybe seek to do evil to you. Even though bad things are happening and wicked people have their way, like Herod did with John the Baptist. Even though there are sick and some of them are dear to you, just as they were in that crowd by the Sea of Galilee. Think about Jesus ministering through you in the context of the trouble. And do not see it as something peripheral that has happened to you. Now, this is how David deals with the trouble that remains in his life and for which, really, in a lot of ways, he has no explanation. First, God knows everything. God knows everything. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. One study Bible called Psalm 139 a praise of God's omniscience. Omni is the word for all. Science is the word for science. <laughs> okay, we have it, science in our, in our uh, language. Omniscience is God knowing everything. All about everything. Equals MC squared, the distance the planets are from the sun. They just discovered this star, they say, that is what? A million times bigger than our star? God knows all that, okay? He has complete understanding. Some people want to whittle on the knowledge of God when they face the trouble in the world and say, well, God can't, God can't really know everything. You know, I don't want to trouble him with this. I'll just let this slide. Not David. David sees the omniscience of God, the knowledge of God, as a place to go and be comforted and be safe when he confronts trouble and enemy and wickedness in the world. And I want you to think of it the same way. Now, now I want you to see the knowledge of God, not just in terms of math and science, but in terms of the two things that he mentions in these six verses that I think are astonishing. The first is, he says of God, You perceive my thoughts from afar. I don't know how thoughts come about. I know they are amazing, okay? I know many of your thoughts never reach the light of day, and you don't want them to. You're glad they didn't get out of your head and out of your mouth, all right? God knows your thoughts from the very first synapsis and stirring in your brain. 
He perceives your thoughts. God knows your thought life. You need to receive this. It might be scary at first, okay? It's not good news necessarily that God knows what you're thinking. Right? Even now, God knows every thought in the room. He perceives our thoughts from afar, but we need to embrace it. Because it expresses how broad and deep and complete his knowledge is. Another thing that David says in this passage is, you know the words before they are formed on my tongue. Okay, you have a thought. Will you say it or not? God knows the thought. He knows the words that are about to tumble out of your mouth before you do. You may surprise yourself with what you say, but you have not surprised God. This is the amazing extent of the knowledge of God. It is not so, so amazing to me that he knows the geometry and the mathematics and the galaxies. It's that interior in my mind. He perceives my thoughts. He knows the words before the, I speak them. See, it is the personal knowledge that God has of David to which he flees when he looks at his world. Now, God knows everything. God knew Job. God had 150 questions for Job at the end of the book of Job. You may think, well, the book of Job answers the question of why bad things happen to good people. Uh, not really. <laughs> what the book of Job does is set your trouble in the context of God's omniscience. Just like this psalm does. God knows it all. Nothing that's happened to you has surprised him. None of the words you have spoken were unknown to him. Even the thoughts that you give birth to in your mind, he knows completely. God knows everything. God knows you. God knows you completely. He is familiar with all your ways. He's familiar with all your ways. He not only knows what you do, but why you do it. Your ways are how you behave, how you operate, your style in life. God is familiar with all your ways. His knowledge of you is not superficial. It's not just statistical. He knows the intentions and motives of your heart. He is familiar with all the ways you approach relationships, ideas, and interacting in your world. Jesus demonstrated this over and over again in his earthly ministry. It, it hasn't been too long ago that someone was talking to me about God. And they had a picture of God as a bearded elderly person sitting on a throne. 
and it was difficult to identify with that person. And I said, why don't you switch out the bearded person on the throne and put in that central place in your mind, Jesus of Nazareth. And understand God from the point of view of Jesus. And she said, well, that feels a lot better. And I said, it ought to, because that's why Jesus came, to help us unpack the true nature of God. That's why he is the highest revelation, the brightest star in all the things God's taught us about himself. Nothing even comes close to Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnation. This is God's finest and ultimate word to us. Jesus meets Nathanael. He says, ah, here is an Israelite in whom there is nothing false. And then he says, I saw you when you were sitting under the fig tree. Now, I don't know all the context of that, but I know Nathaniel says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. The knowledge Jesus has of him is astounding to Nathaniel. And David writes here, you know my rising and my sitting. And Jesus knew it of Nathaniel. Nicodemus came to him. And Nicodemus gives him a compliment, which Jesus really doesn't respond to except to say, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Well, this thought, <laughs> Nicodemus can't get his, his mind around. You've got to be born again. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot even see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Some of you have been trying to see the kingdom of God with your physical eye, and you can't see it till you're born again. See, he is familiar with all my ways. Nicodemus came at night under the cloak of darkness to talk to Jesus. And Jesus knew his ways and just what he needed. And Nicodemus was one of those guys that took Jesus down from the cross. A man who was a believer and who received Christ as his Savior because Jesus was familiar with all his ways and demonstrated in that encounter his knowledge of Nicodemus. Zacchaeus climbed up in that tree. I'm still startled by that. But Jesus knows his thoughts, knows what he's thinking. Here's a rich man in a tree. Does anybody else understand what's going on in Nicodemus' mind and heart in the interior of his soul? No. When Jesus calls him out of that tree to go to his house, everybody is upset. The whole crowd is murmuring and complaining. But Jesus knows the man's thoughts. And Nicodemus is ready to repent of his thievery. And make it right with God. God knows that about you. God's been tugging on your heart and you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit and you've been wanting to turn from the way you're living into a new way of life. Jesus knows that about you just like he knew it about Zacchaeus. He's familiar with all your ways. He knows the words you're going to speak just like he demonstrated to the woman at the well who said, I don't have a husband. And he said... Yeah, you say rightly you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the man you're living with now, you're not married to. I guess she fumbles around a little bit and says, well, I guess you're a prophet. Yeah, he's a prophet. 
He knows your words before you think them. Your objections, your excuses, all the things you want to bring to God as reasons why you're not pulling in, receiving his love, entering into that relationship that he made you for. God knows all the words before they're spoken. God knows everything. God knows you. God said to Satan, Satan came from roaming around all the earth. God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody like him. Nobody like him in all the earth. A righteous man. God knew Job. I wonder if God's ever mentioned your name from the throne. Think maybe he has? You say, oh, no, I don't have that status. I don't know. Maybe God's used your first name in front of the angels already. Just like happened in the book of Job. That's a thought now, isn't it? Have you considered that sister? How well she's doing? The troubles she's gone through, and yet she's still faithful. I know this. God knows your first name. He understands your struggles. He knows where you've been and where you're going. And he loves you passionately. And the reason you can deal with the trouble you're in and the sorrow that has come into your life is because of the knowledge and love of God. Sometimes trouble hits us so that we get things inverted. Satan responded to God when God pointed out Job. Satan said, well, does Job fear God for not? You built a hedge around him. You've hedged him in on every side. But if you took down the hedge, if you let some bad things happen to him, he'd curse you to your face. I bet he's seen that before. Don't you think? People who love God and serve God as long as everything was rosy and good and life was turning out like it was supposed to turn out and they intended it to. And then something slammed them down, hit them in the face, some surprise, something terrible that happened in their life and all of a sudden, God's not so good anymore, not so worthy of praise. Don't go to church much like I used to. No, don't sing those songs anymore. Too much trouble in my life. I'll bet you Satan's seen some folks when he goes to God and says, does Job serve God for naught? I'll bet he's seen some of those that turned tail and ran from God when trouble came. You've got him hedged in. I like what David says. God knows everything. God knows you. He hems you in. You see that? In verse 5, he hems you in. Behind and before, you were hemmed in. When I read the word hemmed in, I thought about the hedge. I thought about Job's hedge. Now, the hedge that Satan mentions to Job is a thorn hedge. Like I mentioned two weeks ago in the message, that the shepherds would make a corral out of those thorn bushes 
and take all those branches and they'd put the sheep in there at night. And the hedge that Job mentions is a hedge of protection. It protects the sheep from the wolves. Job later says to God, what is a man supposed to do who is born of woman, whom you have hedged in? His question comes in chapter 3, and he uses a different word than the devil used in heaven. He used a word for besieged, and that's the word that David uses here. Sometimes you feel like God's just protecting you. He's surrounded you by his angels. He's holding you up so you don't dash your foot against a stone. And you're just hemmed in on every side by the protective arm of God. And sometimes you feel like God has captured you, imprisoned you, and trapped you. And no matter what you do, you can't get away from his hand. It's like he has besieged you. His hand is upon me, David writes here. I can't go anywhere in my mind that he's not already there. I can't ask any questions that he doesn't even know, that he knows the question before I ask it. There's no place I can visit in all this universe where God is not there. It's like, in a way, David is saying the same thing as Job said. It's not a fair fight, God. What turns the hedge into bars like a prison? How does that get flipped? Where you feel like God's protecting you, and then all of a sudden you feel like God's trapping you. It is your understanding of his love for you. I think when we start feeling that God has corralled us and trapped us, that somehow God is responsible for all the bad things that have happened to us and God's not keeping his part of the bargain, we are questioning the central character of God, which is his love. And let's be honest. That's the real question. Does God really love you? Would a loving God let this happen to my daughter? To my mother? Would a loving God allow these things to happen in Haiti? Would a loving God allow Katrina? See, when it comes right down to it, it's not so much the theoretical notions of God that we begin to challenge in mind and heart in our sorrow, our trouble, our pain. It is his love. Does God really love me? You answer that question best in the presence of Jesus of Nazareth. Peter says at one point, because of Jesus, we believe in God who raised him from the dead. It's because of Jesus. 
that we believe in God. Christians answer the problem of pain and trouble in the world by pointing to Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. We love him because he first loved us. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And what? How do we know that? What's the answer? How am I certain of the love of God? Because he gave his son as a satisfaction for my sin. It is on the cross of Christ, in his death upon the cross, that we learn the complete and surpassing love of God, not just for the human race, but for me in my situation, my predicament, my pain, my trouble, right now. It is through the cross of Christ that I learn this lesson. And I must keep it in my heart and never let it slip. God loves me. He demonstrated that when Jesus died upon the cross. This is his final answer to my question. Do you love me? Amen. God's final answer in your life is Jesus. You will see other hints and expressions of the love of God many times. And often it will be in retrospect. After you have passed through the valley of the shadow of death, you will look back and realize, God watched over me through all that trouble. In the middle of the valley, you may not understand his presence and his knowledge and his love as well. But once you get through, you look back and say, yeah, I can see how he was watching me. You will see the expression of the love of God over and over again in your own personal journey. But God's final answer is not your personal experience of suffering, pain, happiness, or sadness. It is Jesus' death upon the cross. And so Christians have always come right back to the cross of Christ and their understanding of the world and how things really are. And what happened on the cross? Jesus took your personal failure to honor God and bring him glory. And he swept it into his own life as he died. He died for you. What kind of answer is that to the pain in my life? It's this. God has embraced your pain. And he is with you in it. And the death of Christ upon the cross is God's answer to your sorrow. John the Baptist died. They cut his head off and delivered it. To Herodias on a silver platter. Jesus was the man of sorrows. Lazarus is sick. And now he's dead. Jesus wept. Man of sorrows. The prophet called him. What a name. For the son of God. Who came. Why would you call him man of sorrows? Because sorrow is part of the human experience and part of your experience. And the Son of God took it into his own being as he died upon the cross. Where will you go? My brother, my sister, 
what journey will you make with the injustices and evil in the world and in your life? I urge you, come to God's answer in your time of need. His name is Jesus. He loves you completely. He knows you completely. And he saves you completely when you come to him. Let's bow together. Job had to repent when God finally confronted him. And that may be something you need to do in the privacy of your heart. You may have to say, like Job did, Lord, I repent. I've thought and said and done things that I know are outside of your will and did not bring you glory. I have forgotten your love for me expressed in Christ and I repent. Forgive me. Maybe your real need is to turn loose of the life you're trying to live and receive the life Christ has for you. To let go of what you've got so your hands will be free to receive what God has for you. Lord, I pray for that man or woman in the room for whom this message and this moment is critical. They are on the edge of bitterness and anger has been their friend too long. Lord, I pray for your delivering work in that heart that has such questions. And that you might answer it through your Holy Spirit in this moment with a renewal and assurance of your love, your presence. Lord, we give ourselves unto you and pray that you will use this moment for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.